0: Welcome to the Siskiy Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. It's only a couple times in a person's life that they are in a position to buy diamonds. (laughs) You know, maybe it is a you know, a, a, an engagement ring or, you know, a wedding ring combo. Maybe it's an anniversary gift or uh, it's a special birthday. Uh, but, but most of the time for a guy, uh, you know, there's only a couple of times in his life when he buys a diamond and that's for his soon to be wife or his wife. And, you know, it's interesting when Casey and I were just getting started out, and, you know, we were poor, and we were gullible, and we didn't really know what we were doing, and, and you know, we were gifted some money so that we could get married, and we went to this shop, uh, kind of a little hole-in-the-wall jewelry store to buy our wedding rings, you know, and we totally got gypped. We ended up with rings that we didn't like, and that were overpriced, and, but it, was, it wasn't really important. What was important is what they stood for, but, you know... Some 15, 16, 17 years later, something happened to my wife's wedding ring, and she's going to kill me for telling the story, but she shared it already with some of the ladies, so it's nothing, nothing surprise. Somehow her wedding ring got thrown away. Like what a devastating thing it was. And so, you know, for for months we searched and we searched and we searched until finally we ended up with enough money to go get another wedding ring. Well, we didn't go to a hole-in-the-wall jewelry shop this time. We went to the mall. (laughs) And there in the mall, boy, as we're looking at diamonds, something that I noticed was that all of the diamonds were set against a black background. And, and, And as you asked to check out specific rings and rocks, boy, they would take them out and they would lay them on a black velvet mat that the brilliance and the beauty of each individual diamond would shine so much more brightly against the black background. That's the way it is. If you go into a jewelry store today, you'll see that they're displayed on the black backgrounds. And as I've said before, man, that's exactly what Paul is doing here in Romans, is that he's in the process of laying out that black mat, that black background, that he might display for us the beauty and the wonder of the gospel of Jesus, that it might shine all the more brightly, that the salvation available to us through Jesus would glimmer like a diamond against the black background of our guilt. And Paul has been taking some time to really lay out the guilt of humanity over the past few verses and chapters and verses, really. In verse one, he kind of began with the heathen, with the pagan heathen, who was just committing all of the egregious, obvious sins, lying and adultery and murder and covetousness, and says, hey, look, you guys are guilty of sins, even if you didn't know about God, even if you've never heard the, the good news of the gospel, you know enough about God because of creation. You can look at the beauty and wonder of creation and know that there's a God, and you ought to honor him and serve him as such. So Paul starts out with just the pagan heathen, the obvious, the kind of low-hanging fruit. But then on Sunday, as we opened up chapter two, we saw that he moved into some more subtle waters. He moved into the waters of the moralist, the self-righteous religious person, the one who would step back and look at his or her life and say, you know what, actually, I'm a pretty good person. I don't drink and I don't smoke and I don't cuss and I work hard and I go to church. And Paul kind of destroys that argument that we can be good enough to enter into heaven. And and we talked about that on Sunday, just really the the astronomical just status of, of, of God's perfection, just what he requires of us, how it's so beyond our reach that his requirements for salvation are perfection. In thought, and indeed, from the time you're born to the time you take your last breath. And it's so easy for us. We, we talked about this on Sunday. The, the, the effects that sin can have on us it, is that we can be blinded to our own sin while so easily seeing the sin of other people. And, and Paul really kind of straightened that out for us on Sunday as we opened up the first few verses of chapter 2 as he dealt with the, the kind of the self-righteousness Moralist, and he said, "Man, you guys are 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 just as guilty uh, because there's no way that you can be perfect. We're all without excuse." And we pick up tonight where we left off on Sunday. We'll we'll keep trucking through this um, this guilt that Paul is laying on the moralist, that he's laying on the quote unquote good person, and then he'll kind of transition. He'll segue from the moralist into the Jew who was really, like, religious, and they really said, man, we are better than everybody else. We've got the law. We are, uh, you know, we are the epitome of religiosity, and God loves us just because we were born Jews. And so uh, we're going to see that nobody escapes uh, this guilt that that Paul is laying out, not the heathen, no excuse for him, not the self-righteous, religious person, no excuse, and, and not even for the Jew, God's chosen people. There's no excuse For anybody. And so we're going to pick up in verse 6, but we're actually going to back up to verse 5 because verse 6 doesn't really make much sense unless we read verse 5 with it. And so verse 5 says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life. To those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So Paul kind of goes on, after really calling out the moralists and saying, hey listen, there's nothing that you can do that is good enough to earn God's favor or love, to kind of say, you know, God is going to render unto each according to his deeds. For those who do good Seeking God's glory and honor, and literally in the Greek it means to keep on doing good, to keep on seeking God's glory and honor, and we'll get to that a little bit later tonight, but keep that in mind, it's to keep on, Uh, they will receive eternal life. But for those who don't obey the Lord, for for those who don't obey the truth, who are self-seeking, who um, obey unrighteousness, and again there's that word, they keep obeying unrighteousness habitually, that's their character, that's who they are. Uh, and and does evil, keeps on doing evil. For them, they will receive wrath and tribulation and anguish. So those that keep on practicing good will receive eternal life. Those that keep on practicing evil will uh, receive wrath and tribulation and anguish. And you say, well, wait a second here, Pastor Jeremy. Let's let's hit the pause button for just a minute. Because it, it kind of sounds an awful lot like salvation through works. And if we were to just take this little snippet of Scripture and build a whole doctrine out of it, boy, we could kind of make the Bible say what we wanted to. But salvation does not come by works. But judgment does. Salvation isn't by works, but judgment is by works. All unbelievers, every single person on the planet who has never put their trust in Jesus Christ will one day stand before God and give an account for everything that they did. And if they've been perfect, even like Paul says here, if they have sought good, if they have sought God's glory, his honor, all of their life in everything that they do, boy, then they've been good enough. And that's the idea. Paul's saying, man, if you, the moralist, have been good your whole entire life in thought indeed perfection, then you've been good enough to enter into heaven. But we all know that that's an impossibility. There's only one man who ever lived that was perfect, and that was Jesus. And so, uh, again, Paul's point to the self-righteous, to the moralist, is you cannot be good enough. Never. None of us can ever be good enough. And that's why we are not saved by works, but we're saved by grace. So, again, if we took this little snippet of Scripture, we could build this whole theology that says, boy, you have to be a good little Christian, Boy, and a good little Christian girl, and if you don't walk in all the good deeds that the Lord would have for you, then it's hell. But if you walk good enough, if you earn it, if you're a really good Christian, boy, then it's heaven. But we have to take the whole counsel of God's word. That's why it's so important that we study through all of the scripture. That we just don't take one text and build a whole entire doctrine out of it. Because the idea that we can earn eternal life through works contradicts the rest of scripture. You know Ephesians 2:8 says for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works lest anyone should boast. Paul will go on in Romans chapter 6 verse 23 to say for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again in Romans 10 That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And again in Titus 3.5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So what exactly is Paul saying here then? Well, first of all, like I said, he's pointing out to the moralists that you can't be good enough to get into heaven. There's no way that you can live your whole entire life seeking nothing but God's glory and his honor and never have a moment of self-seeking. It just won't happen. But what Paul is really showing us here is what James points out in the second chapter of the book that bears his name. Uh, That the deeds of the redeemed are not the basis of their salvation, but the evidence of it. Uh, James says that without uh, or faith without works is dead. See, the good works uh, are not how we enter heaven, Uh, good works are not how we are saved. Good works are an evidence of our salvation. And and James, boy, there in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, and I'm going to turn there. James 2.14, he he lays this out for us. And he says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? In other words, what does it profit somebody to have a a worthless faith, a false faith, something that that doesn't do anything? What does it profit a man to to just talk about it? Can faith save him if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food? And one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? So what a good illustration. Paul says, you know, if somebody's just destitute. They're without food, they're without shelter. And you say, hey, Jesus loves you. Here's a track. Is that what the Lord has called us to do? Absolutely not. Who would want a piece of that action? Who wants anything to do with that faith? That faith is dead. That's not what Jesus tells us to do. He says, anyone who is given one of the needy a cool glass of water has given a cool glass of water unto me. Or food to the needy has given food. He doesn't call us to just share kind of lip service like James is suggesting here. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So, So talk is cheap. You can talk about it all day long, but if you don't have any works to back it up, it's worthless. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Right, well, I just have faith. And someone will say, well, I just have works. Uh, these things are, are mutually uh, exclusive, uh, and so I've got both. You've got one, I've got the other. So there's this, this confusion here. So show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. See, neither one exists. You can't show me your faith by works, and I can't show you my faith by my works. Without works, because faith without works is nothing, and you can't say that, show me my faith by my works. Neither one of those work. You can't have faith without works, and you can't have works uh, without faith. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. That is to say, faith without works is nothing. And I will show you my faith by my works. So you believe it. there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? So now James gets into this situation to where it looks like he's flipping everything on its head. He says, well, what about Abraham. Abraham was justified by his works when he sacrificed his son on the altar, or or went to sacrifice his son. You guys know the story. He didn't actually get to that point. But here's the thing. Abraham's works are an evidence of his faith. Then he gets into uh, Rahab in the next verse, James does. And he talks about Rahab. Uh, do, Do you see that faith was working together with works And by works, faith was made perfect, still speaking of Abraham. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith. Likewise was not Rahab, the harlot, also justified by works, when she received uh, the messengers and sent them out another way. For the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. So he uses these uh, kind of amazing analogies, amazing stories, from the Old Testament, that of Abraham, who by his works showed his faith to be real, and by Rahab, who by her works showed her faith to be real. And that's what Paul is is saying back in Romans chapter 2. He, he says, uh, listen, eternal life is not reward for good living. We can never be good enough, uh, but our good works show that we have Not that our good works show that we have faith. Our good works are evidence of a changed heart. Uh, A person's doing good shows that his heart is regenerate and redeemed by God and that they will experience eternal life. But the person who continually does evil and rejects the truth shows that he is unregenerate and they will experience the wrath of God. See, uh, if a person's conduct is habitually uh, wicked, well, it, it shows that they're really not regenerate no matter what they say. And then if a person's conduct is habitually good, you can see that there is something to their faith. And so Paul is simply showing us that it doesn't really matter if you can talk a good game, if you don't have anything to back it up. And that's what he is saying uh, to the moralist here in in chapter 2. And so David is one who committed many sins. Isn't he? So you, you, he's like, he's a case study in this whole idea of, of works and faith. Because David committed many egregious sins, and yet, what was he known as? The man after God's own heart. So how can that be? If works are an indication of our faith, and faith without works is dead, and we look at David's life, who was a man after God's own heart, and yet his life was full of sin, What gives? See, here's the thing. It's not a matter of if we sin, because we all will sin. But it's what we do when we sin. That makes sense? That was a mouthful. Because David, when he sinned, what was his posture? He was broken. He was repentant before the Lord. See, if we keep on in our way of, you know, rebellion... Remember, if you keep on rejecting, keep on walking in obedience to unrighteousness, if that is your conduct, if that is your way of life, if you're practicing to see how good at sin you can possibly get, then that's an indication that the faith that you have in your life is a sham. But if you are keeping on this trajectory that that draws you closer to the Lord, it, it indicates the state of your heart also. And so, you know, I love sections of Scripture like this because they really cause us to, to pause and to, to consider uh, about our own lives. Like, what does this really mean? It causes us to stop and think, where are we in our own lives with all of this? Right? The Bible tells us that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That there's an aspect to our lives that's supposed to be reflective and contemplative, uh, and, and that we're to self-examine, and to take inventory, and evaluate, and confess, that, that we're to not just take for granted, all right, you know, there's all this evidence in my life that would indicate that there hasn't been an internal change, but I'm just going to keep on rolling with it anyways. We're to evaluate, we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, and what are my motives? Where do I stand? Is my faith a true and saving faith? See, the last thing I want to do is to lead you guys into a place to where you're overly confident in a faith that doesn't exist. See, if your faith is genuine, there should be works in your life that back it up. And if there's not, the answer isn't doing more work so you look more religious. The answer is going back and saying, all right, Lord, what's broken inside that you might regenerate my heart that I might have a genuine faith? And it's a hard question. It's not one that I can look at your life and determine, or you can look at my life and determine, it's something that we have to work out on our own. If you were to take a snapshot of David's life in that season of sin, a man who was guilty of unfaithfulness and adultery and lying and murder, you'd be like, that dude is for sure going to hell. But it was a season. We're not to judge others, but we ought to be doing some self-inspection. And that's why I, I-, I like these uh, Portions in Scripture that are difficult to work through, but they cause us to really think about uh, things that are important, like where we stand with the Lord. Uh, you know, Jesus will say to many, depart from me, I never knew you. And those people were the ones that stood before the Lord and said, did we not do all these amazing works in your name, Lord? And work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's important. Because these principles that Paul is speaking about, They apply to every single human on the planet. Uh, It it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, if you're a Jew. uh, It doesn't matter what your uh, ethnic background is. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're a nobody or a CEO. We will all stand before the Lord and we'll give an account. Uh, And we will either plead the blood of Jesus or we will give an account of our own deeds and we will be found wanting. And so uh, Paul really is letting us have it. And so verse 12, he moves on. And he continues on really with, with the, the moralist. But now he's, he's kind of sliding from the moralist to the Jew. See, in this letter to the Romans, boy, there would have been all walks of life. There would have been everybody in this kind of this scale. From those who are just absolute heathens, living like heathens, who are without excuse. Those who were Gentiles, but moralist. Those who were Gentiles, maybe exposed to the law, thinking that they were obeying the law, all the way to Jews. And now Paul is kind of sliding down the scale, and he's now going to get into the law, the segue between the self-righteous individual and the Jews who have the law. And he says this in verse 12. He says, For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, Are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. And so Paul gets into this section now where he starts talking about the law. And he says, You know, the Gentiles who didn't have the law will perish without the law. Even though they never heard the law, there's an amount of accountability that they will deal with. And we'll see that that accountability is that they had the law written on their hearts. They had the conscience uh, that God put there. Uh, The Jews, however, they had the law and they will be judged by the law. And they will be uh, held accountable even greater because they had it. They were entrusted with God's law. They knew right and wrong. But what Paul is saying is it doesn't matter if you had the law or if you didn't have the law. What matters is if you walk according to the law. And is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. And so James is saying, the one who hears the law and doesn't do it, what a fool. He's like the guy who looks in the mirror when he first wakes up and he's like, oh man, I'm I'm a wreck. Or the lady who hasn't put on her face yet. I love that expression. My grandma used to say that all the time. Oh, hang on, I got to put my, you can't come over yet. I haven't put my face on. I'm like, Grammy, I don't care if you have your your face. When I was a little kid, that really used to freak me out. Because I was like, your face comes off? But it doesn't, it's like if you look in the mirror and you see that there's just work that needs to be done, you just walk away and forget and you go to work and you got eye boogers and you got, you know, you're half shaven and your hair's a mess and that's the person who hears the law but doesn't do the law. A foolish person does that because the law is a mirror. It shows us where we have failed and what we need to work on. But having the law, Paul is saying, is worthless Unless you do the law. Man, you come to church on Sunday, awesome. You come to church on Wednesday night, that's great. Man, you go to men's uh, Bible study or ladies group or you go to youth group or you go to young adults group. Young adults group, first one is starting tomorrow night, by the way, for you young adults, 18 to 25 uh, at six o'clock at Minor Street, 313 Minor Street. But man, you can come to all of these things. You can hear God's word over and over and over again. Congratulations. That's great. If you do it, it's a waste of time. You should have spent your time doing something else. Uh, Paul is saying it's important that we not only hear the word, but we do the word, even as James would go on to say uh, later. And so uh, the Jews, they have the law. But they'll be held accountable to it. But the Gentiles, although they don't have the law, they have God's uh, law written on their hearts. This instinctive kind of right or wrong that we're born with. Uh, We all are born with a, a conscience. And those who have never heard the law, they don't know the Ten Commandments, but they have this sense of right and wrong. When they violate their conscience, they're just as guilty. So, so there's these, these things that have been given. The, the law has been given by the conscience and by the writing of the law. And, and, and either one of the, the groups that ignores those, boy, they're, they're guilty. And we see this conscience, this law that has been given to man, we see it in every walk of life. Every culture, every part of the world, uh, things like honesty uh, and uh, yeah, honor uh, are are valued, and things like murder and adultery are abhorred. And, and you'll hear people say things like, there, "There's these like fringe, you know, like reports, like oh, so and so went to the deepest, darkest place of the jungle, and they find this tribe where they, you know, they they esteem adultery and they esteem thievery, and you say that's. A bunch of malarkey. That's a bunch of bull. Yeah, that's not true. And so let's just say there is a fringe group. It doesn't negate the reality that by and large God has given us as humanity his law written on our hearts. So generally speaking, uh, we have that. And so our conscience, when we violate our conscience, we feel guilty. Paul warns us against violating our conscience over and over. Martin Luther he said to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. And I partially agree with that, right? Like Paul says, we're not to violate our conscience. We're not to to justify our wrongs or push down that feeling of guilt uh, that is produced by our our conscience because it's dangerous. Um, Because when we constantly violate our conscience and ignore it, eventually our conscience becomes seared. Our conscience becomes uh, calloused and it, it stops working the way that it's supposed to. Pretty soon those alarms that God put in there, they stop going off and nothing seems to really be wrong anymore. We can get to that place where our conscience is so seared, we're not really bothered by anything. And I think our culture really is a byproduct of that currently. The things that would, you know, have just, I mean, made our grandparents blush. Our grandparents would have been like, what is going on? That's that's just lewd. It's prime time. I mean, the references in even kids' movies that cause adults to giggle, our grandparents would be like, that is shameful. It's because collectively, culturally, our conscience has been seared and those things no longer bother us. And so we we need to be careful not to sear our conscience. But it's a double-edged sword, right? Can we we take the advice of Jiminy Cricket? Can we just let our conscience be our guide? We can't. Because the problem is our conscience can also be misinformed. Our conscience can be distorted. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? See, the conscience, this is what R.C. Sproul said, he said, the conscience is a delicate instrument that must be respected. And I agree with that. It is a delicate instrument that must be respected. But I would add to that that it first must be cleansed by the blood of Jesus and that it also must be kept calibrated through God's word. And so Paul, he, he talks about the conscience that, again, just showing that there is none who get off the hook. Either you have the law and you violated the written law or you violated the conscience that is God's law written on your heart. And, uh, you know, both of those groups will be the the object of God's judgment. Um, now, the judgment that's being talked about here and, and the judgment that is being talked about in verse five, it's the same judgment. It's just the overarching judgment where God will judge the world. Now, it's extremely oversimplified, right? And we don't have really much time to get into it tonight, but, you know, uh, the next event on the prophetic calendar is the rapture. It's where we will be caught up with Jesus and the we will be taken out of this world, we'll go up to heaven and we'll enjoy the marriage, lamb, uh, marriage feast of the lamb, marriage supper of the lamb, and, and during that seven-year period, man, tribulation period on earth, God's wrath will be being poured out on this planet because we have rejected him. Uh, at, At the end of that tribulation period, Jesus will come back. It will be his second advent of Christ. He will come to earth. We will be by his side. He'll wipe out the armies of the world who stand against him, and he will take back the kingdom for himself. He will establish his kingdom at that point. And there will be the Bema Seat judgment. So there's the judgment that God pours out during the tribulation. Then there's the Bema Seat judgment. That's the judgment that Christians go through. It's where we will give an account, not unto salvation, but it's a judgment unto rewards. Where we will give an account for the things that we did as Christians. Boy, was it wood, hay, it stubble? Was it selfish? Was it worthless? Is it burned up? Or is it gold and silver and precious stones? And we will be rewarded for those things that we did with the right motive. And we'll take those crowns that were and we'll throw them at Jesus' feet. And we'll enter into that sweet thousand year period, the millennial reign. And we'll rule with Jesus. But, but then after that thousand year reign, Satan will be loosed because all those who lived during that time had never really experienced what it was like to be tempted by Satan because he was bound for a thousand years. That's why there's peace and prosperity on the earth like we've never seen. The curse reversed. But there are all those who who will fall away and then there's the great white throne judgment at that time. And that's when all the unbelievers and Satan will all be judged and it will be the lake of fire, it will be eternal punishment and heaven and earth will be destroyed and then there will be a new heaven and new earth and everybody will live happily ever ever after. But that whole idea, we just say, oh, the judgment of God, the judgment day. There's lots of judgment, but the overarching idea is just the the judgment of God. And uh, so the pagan guilty the religious moralist guilty, and now the Jew guilty. And we're going to pick up the pace significantly. Uh, Verse 17, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and you rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, but being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and the truth and the law. And at this point, the Jews must be going like, oh, that's right, we are, that's us, that is us. We are all of these wonderful things, a light to the lost and we have the law and boy, we are the instructors of the foolish. But then Paul keeps on going and he says, a teacher of babes having the form of knowledge and the truth of the law, but you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make yourself boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. That's a pretty harsh statement towards the Jews right there. And he's showing the Jews that they are absolutely guilty. Listen, you are sons of Abraham. You guys have the law. You're a guide to the blind. Uh, You're to be teaching God's ways. And they were. There was this air of superiority. We are the Jews and we're saved because we're Jews. We have a free ticket to heaven because we are Abraham's seed. But they were a bunch of hypocrites. They were a bunch of hypocrites. And Paul says, listen, you have all these wonderful things, but do you apply these things to yourself? Are you practicing what you you preach? You teach others not to commit adultery, but then you go and commit adultery yourself. And they say, wait a second, we don't commit adultery. right?" But they do. Again, it was one of those fine line things where they would play games. They, They weren't saying, well, you know, we're going out and just sleeping with anybody we want. But they would divorce their wives for anything. Divorce was rampant. They would divorce their wife. They, they, they would say, oh, you know, I, I saw a lady today, honey, that was prettier than you, and therefore you are unclean compared to her, so I divorce you. And they would say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And by the way, your mom drives me crazy, and we're divorced. You know, that, that's what they would do. They, but Jesus said, listen, you can't just go do that. You know, you commit adultery. That, that's not grounds for divorce. Uh, Jesus said, if you look upon a woman with lust, you've committed adultery within your heart. So they were committing adultery. You teach others not to steal, but do you steal? Right In Malachi, the Lord comes down on them for robbing God. How are they robbing God? They were not giving of their tithes and of their offerings. And then Malachi 3 says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessings that there will not be room big enough to receive it. He says, You guys are ripping me off by not giving me a tithe, a tenth. And here's the thing about the tithe the tithe was before the law. Check it out in the story of Melchizedek and Abraham, where Abraham pays Melchizedek a picture of Jesus, a tithe of everything that he had. It's in the law. It's in the New Testament after the law when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. It's not about the law. It's a matter of of the heart. And God has instituted this thing called a tithe where we give to the Lord 10% to remind us that 100% is his and he lets us keep 90% of what is his. The Bible tells us that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And the tithe is God's way of keeping our hearts right. It works great for me. He says, Man, we can be joyful givers. And, and it's, what a wonderful thing. We say, Lord, man, this is 10% of what you give. Man, God, you've been so good to me. Uh, it's not something that we have to do begrudgingly. Oh, I have to. Something we get to do joyfully. And God says, Try me in this. See how your life works when you're faithful to give financially. And I will tell you right now, from my own personal experience, the Lord has been so faithful to me in my finances, He's blessed me so much more than I deserve because we've been faithful with our tithe. You say, well, that's awful self-serving, Pastor Jeremy. Give to another church. I don't really care. Just give to the Lord. That's the point. And so uh, they were teaching not to steal, but they were stealing from from God. They were supposed to be the light. They were supposed to be uh, the guide. Um, You know, in Isaiah 49, the Lord calls the Jew. He said, is it too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore and the preserved ones of Israel? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. See, that was the thing, is that God gave the Jew the law and the blessings and the authority to be the light and to be the guide, to show the Gentiles which way they ought to go. And instead, they walked in hypocrisy and... As they walked in hypocrisy, they blasphemed God among the Gentiles, and they gave God a black eye because they were hypocrites. And as we read that, boy, we have to do a little self-examination, don't we, as the church? How are we doing? Because the Lord has called us to be the light. You're to be the light for Christ in your workplace, in school, in your neighborhood. How's that going for us? How's that going for the church collectively? You know what I hear as a pastor so often when I invite people to church Oh, man, church is full of hypocrites, right? And now don't get me wrong. That's like the number one excuse, and, you know, they're just, you know, it's an excuse because Walmart's full of hypocrites, and they still go there. The the NFL is full of hypocrites, and they still watch NFL. It's been said that if you find a church that has no hypocrites, don't join or you'll ruin it, (laughs) But we ought to live out our faith. When we live hypocritically, it gives Jesus a black eye when we don't practice what we preach. And so, you know, it's interesting. I don't have a Jesus fish on my car. You know why? How wrong is that? How backwards is that thinking? Say, I don't want to put a Jesus fish on my car because when I cut somebody off, I don't want to give Jesus a bad name. Wouldn't the right thing to be just stop cutting people off? But that's what Paul is saying here. And so Jews, guilty. Uh, Paul is letting every single person have it. There's none that escape the guilt. There just isn't. Uh, We'll finish out chapter 2 on Sunday. And, And what a beautiful thing it is. And it talks about the way that the Lord looks upon the heart. That it's not about the outward appearance of religiosity. But it's about the inward change. And that's really the direction that Paul is going. We're all guilty. Heathens, self-righteous, the Jew. We're all condemned to death unless, unless, unless we trust in Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. And we're getting there. Boy, He's not done painting uh, the blackness of our sin yet. But boy, when we get through it and we get to the good stuff, boy, the light of the gospel shines so brightly because the truth is we really don't care about a savior until we realize that we need to be saved. And even as Christians, we need to to look back at that point of reference and say, Lord, boy, you've done so much for me. I so desperately needed to be saved. Thank you for what you've done. Because sometimes what happens is we walk with the Lord for a little while and we forget exactly what the Lord has done for us. And it's a good reminder as we go through these passages, man, that's right. I was utterly and hopelessly lost. Lord, you're not lucky to have me. I'm so lucky to have you. And so it is a really good refresher. So Lord, thank you for your word. And uh, thank you so much, Lord, that, that you really show us the reality of our depravity. Because in our sinful nature, we're prone to think that we're all right. We're prone to think that we have an excuse to, to lean upon. But the reality is, is that we are utterly and totally hopeless without you. And so we thank you so much, Lord, that you came and that you rescued and that you redeemed us. And Lord, as we we leave this place tonight, I pray, Lord, that we would be a a people who really do that self-examining work, that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that we wouldn't just rest on the words of others or make ourselves feel better about things that we shouldn't, but we'd really wrestle those things out. We'd look at our lives And does what we say and the way we live line up? And Lord, where we're tempted to kind of rectify that situation by doing more good works that are hollow, I pray, Lord, that we would hit the pause button and instead just be broken before you about our sin and that you would do that work from the inside out and that good works would be that byproduct. But Lord, the reality is is that we are lost and that you saved us and we thank you for that. So be with us as we go, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com.